My text this Lord's Day is taken from Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that He hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that ye deal not treacherously. This Lord's Day we continue our study regard to the matter of divorce and remarriage. Of all the covenants that man makes with one another, the covenant of marriage is the most significant. This is so, dear ones, for the following reasons. First of all, it is the most ancient covenant between human beings having been instituted in the Garden of Eden while man was yet in his innocency. Secondly, it is the most foundational covenant between human beings, laying the very foundation of all society in regard to the family, the church, and the nation. Thirdly, it is the most enduring covenant between human beings, promising till death us do part. And fourthly, it is the most sacred covenant between human beings being particularly instituted, regulated, and witnessed to by God. And yet, dear ones, I must draw your attention to the fact that the marriage covenant is essentially a civil covenant wherein promises of marital faithfulness are made between a consenting man and a consenting woman. Marriage is not essentially a religious covenant between a couple and God, although the solemnizing of the marriage covenant may involve religious ceremony, such as preaching and prayer. You see, this is a necessary distinction to make with regard to marriage, that it is a civil covenant between two parties, rather than a religious covenant between the couple and God. It's very necessary to make this distinction because... First of all, if marriage is essentially a religious covenant that is made between a couple and God, then non-Christians cannot be lawfully married for they cannot earnestly make such a vow to God through the only mediator, Jesus Christ. And if they are not lawfully married, then all non-Christian marriages are actually adulterous relationships and all the children born of those relationships are illegitimate. Samuel Rutherford, the Scottish commissioner to the Westminster Assembly, noted this very point in the following quote from the debate within the Westminster Assembly when he said, I never heard it denied 
but that the formality and essentiality of marriage consists in the consent of the parties. The vow is not the formality of the marriage itself, for then they that are married without any vow or oath to God, as amongst the heathen, are not lawful marriages. Furthermore, if a religious covenant between a couple and God is in fact what makes a lawful marriage, then the marriage covenant cannot be dissolved for any reason. For God will not absolve us of vows we make to Him until they be all fulfilled. And if a marriage covenant is made with God until death us do part, then only death can dissolve that bond. But dear ones, if a religious covenant with God is that which essentially, formally constitutes a marriage so that there is no possibility of dissolution of that marriage except perhaps by death, then how can God in His Word, permit a remarriage as He does in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1-4. through 4. How can He permit a remarriage in Matthew 19, 9? How can He permit a remarriage in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 27 and 28, where He says that if you remarry, if you marry, he says, having already said, those who are loosed from a marriage by way of divorce, if you marry, you sin not. How can this be taught if in fact it is a religious covenant between a couple and God that essentially constitutes a marriage? To further illustrate marriage as essentially a civil covenant, Consider a man who is elected president of his country and takes an oath to uphold the constitution of that country. If he flagrantly violates the covenant made with the people, the people may lawfully sue out a divorce, as it were, whereby the civil covenant is legally dissolved between the president and the people. And then the president, as a result, being removed from office. Or another example or illustration. Suppose you enter into a civil covenant with a builder to construct for you a home for so much money. But halfway through the construction phase, he stops his work altogether. He discontinues. He breaks his covenant, his word. Are you obligated to pay him the full amount that you agreed upon? No, of course you're not. Why not? Because he broke his covenant. Is the covenant dissolved? Yes. Why? Because he broke the covenant. And so similarly, in marriage... Although this civil covenant is stated to be for life, nevertheless, payment of marital duties is no longer obligatory 
where the covenant has been flagrantly broken in those specified areas which God in His Word articulates. Let me also note that marriage, though a civil covenant, is not just any ordinary civil covenant, but a civil covenant which has been specifically instituted by God, is regulated by God in His Word alone, and a civil covenant to which God is witness. Thus, marriage is not a civil covenant wherein the church, the state, or society at large can alter or amend what God has instituted in marriage. And yet, yet call it a marriage. No amount of civil laws will ever constitute a sodomite union a lawful marriage or an incestuous relationship a lawful marriage. Nor can church, state, or society lawfully dissolve a marriage for reasons which they believe to be convenient. God alone establishes marriages and only He can give reasons which dissolve those marriages. This Lord's Day, we continue our discussion of divorce and remarriage by considering the two following main points. A biblical objection, the one found in Malachi 2.16. And secondly, certain practical questions. A particular biblical objection. As we turn to Malachi 2.16, we find these words, For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that He hateth putting away. That is, He hateth divorce. The objection is made, if God so hates divorce, how can there be such a thing as a lawful divorce? Well, first, God, speaking through the prophet Malachi, specifically addresses the treacherous ways in which the men of Israel were dealing with their lawful wives in Malachi 2.11. Notice the words there of the prophet. Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah hateth. I'm sorry, for Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved and hath married the daughter of a strange God. Notice that the Lord here states this putting away or divorcing of their lawful wives to be an abomination to him. And furthermore, the Lord says that it has profaned his holiness. Now, how is that? How does divorce, an unlawful divorce, how does that profane the holiness of God? Well, it does so by making marriage, 
which has the particular blessing of God permanently imprinted upon it. It makes that marriage, that relationship, just like any other relationship that one might enter into or out of. It makes it common and ordinary, though God Himself and His name has been placed upon this union. He has instituted it, regulates it, and witnesses it. You see, in this way, the name of God is treated as common and cheap and thus profaned because marriage is a divine ordinance. Just like marriage being a divine ordinance, so is civil magistracy. So is the ministry. These are divine ordinances. And those likewise who treat these ordinances as common, as cheap, as ordinary, or those who misuse or abuse them in any way, profane the name of the living God whose name rests upon those ordinances, as well are acts of worship, are ordinances given to us by God. We profane them when we do not worship as God has authorized, when we do not worship with a, a willing spirit and a cheerful spirit, with love to the Lord Jesus Christ, coming only in His righteousness in offering the sacrifices which are pleasing to Him. You see, the Israelites didn't see the connection between their marriages and God's holiness. Let us, dear ones, not fail to see this ever so significant and important connection. How had the Israelites, dear ones, profaned the holiness of the Lord? By putting away their wives for no lawful reason and taking to themselves the daughter of a strange God. You see, the Lord had specifically commanded His people not to marry those who served strange gods in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. They were to marry, as we find in the New Testament Scriptures, only in the Lord. We notice second of all from our text that whether or not such unlawful divorces receive the ecclesiastical or civil punishment that they deserve, nevertheless, the Lord says He no longer accepts the acts of worship offered to Him by these transgressors. Look at what He says in Malachi chapter 2, verses, verse 13. And this have you done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more or receiveth it with, with good will at your hand. The Lord no longer regards your sacrifices, your offerings, and your worship because of the way you have treacherously dealt with your wives, the Lord says. Reminds us of what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, that the prayers of husbands may be hindered 
if they do not dwell with their wives in knowledge and grant to them the honor that is due unto them as joint heirs of the grace of life. God takes this seriously, gentlemen. Thirdly, as we consider our text, the men of Israel ask in chapter 2, verse 14, Wherefore? That is, why? Why will the Lord cut us off and refuse to receive our worship? The Lord says, because He comes as a witness to bear testimony against them for covenant breaking. The covenant promises made by the husband to the wife were not uttered in vain and cast merely into the wind to be carried off to who knows where, but they were heard by the living God. They were witnessed to by the living God. You know, these covenant promises, God will reckon with. Dear ones, God will hold us responsible for the promises that we have made to our spouse even if no one else on earth does, God will. He promises to do so. Fourthly, note that God does not declare the marriage to the wife of thy youth to be lawfully dissolved, but rather declares, yet, this is in chapter 2, verse 14, yet, is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. They had divorced their wives. They had taken these godless wives. But were they truly married? Or were they living in an adulterous relationship? God says that the wife that you have divorced is yet thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. She has not ceased to be what she was before this unlawful divorce. And so she remains a lawful companion and wife by covenant, regardless of what the church of Israel or the state of Israel may say or the way in which they may rule. If they ignore it, neglect it, it matters not to God. That is still your wife, God says. Now, Fifthly, let's consider Malachi 2.16. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. That is, he hateth divorce. We have seen that the context is not dealing with divorce for lawful reasons at all. But specifically with divorce for unlawful, treacherous reasons, according to God. Thus it was the unlawful divorce of faithful wives and the unlawful remarriage to ungodly wives that God here says specifically that He hates. Furthermore, although it may be said that God hates unlawful divorces, nevertheless, there may be a sense in which it might be said as well that he also hates divorce in general. You ask, how? How is that the case? Or why is that the case? Because of the sin 
of the guilty party that leads up to the divorce. Secondly, because of the destructive consequences divorce has in the lives of children and adults alike. And thirdly, because divorce is the formal step which dissolves a marriage that's been instituted by God. That is not to say that the innocent party in a divorce has committed some sin, but in every divorce, listen closely, sin on the part of the guilty party has brought about the legal death of a marriage. And God hates that. Finally, although God hates divorce because of the sin and consequences involved, I declare loudly, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than the sin involved in an unlawful divorce or the sin that leads up to that unlawful divorce. Because one has failed, one has fallen, one has sinned in such a grievous way, not minimizing the sin at all, nevertheless, would God keep that sinner at a distance, keep him from His grace because he has fallen into that sin? Or would God God beckon him, welcome him, call him to come unto him to receive of his mercy and grace which flows so freely from him? Of course, the Lord welcomes all who are sinners to come unto him, to receive of his pardon. And after having received that pardon, to go forth and to make restitution, to seek, if possible, to be reconciled with the innocent party. You remember the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 looked upon himself as a pretty grievous and significant sinner. And he says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul says earlier about himself, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. I consented to the death of Stephen and others like him. I took fathers and mothers from their families and imprisoned them. And I was injurious. But God had mercy upon me. Why? He says in verse 16, How be it for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on Him to life everlasting. Are you too sinful to come to Christ? No. You're not too sinful. Paul says he's the chief of sinners. 
and Christ's mercy and grace was sufficient for him. Take the Lord Jesus Christ today, even if you have been guilty of an unlawful divorce or are the guilty party in an, a lawful divorce. Come to Christ. Repent and turn to Him. He will give you the grace to go forth and do all that is pleasing unto Him. Second main point is to answer certain practical questions. And I have three this Lord's Day. I had fully intended for this to be the last sermon, but those were my plans. The Lord supplied us with more questions, and, and so we will go one more week, God willing. But the first question this Lord's Day, it is asked, does not a lawful remarriage, I'm sorry, does not a lawful remarriage prevent any possibility of reconciliation between former spouses? If so, should remarriage be tolerated? Well, yes, in fact, a lawful remarriage does prevent any possibility of reconciliation between former spouses according to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. In that passage, as you will recall from our study Deuteronomy 24, a husband who puts away his wife for some uncleanness, this must have been a lawful cause for divorce in the Old Testament, this uncleanness, for when she remarries, the man she marries becomes her husband, according to the text. She becomes his wife, according to the text. And the man to whom she was originally married is called her former husband, not her present husband. God says that if the second husband lawfully divorces this same woman, or if even the second husband dies, she may not be remarried to the first husband again. Thus, a lawful remarriage does prevent any possibility of reconciliation to a former spouse. But I ask, does the impossibility of marital reconciliation make a lawful remarriage necessarily sinful? Not unless we are also prepared to condemn the Lord Himself who declared death to be the sanction for adultery in His law. In such cases, there was certainly no possibility for marital reconciliation in the sense of continuing to live together as husband and wife. And yet God instituted such an impossibility of marital reconciliation. So likewise, He instituted an impossibility of marital reconciliation in the case of a lawful remarriage, according to Deuteronomy 24. You see, dear ones, that is God's prerogative as the one lawgiver, James 4.12. It is also asked, by way of a second question, how can divorce be lawful when it is our duty to forgive those who sin against us. Well, first of all, it is indeed our duty to forgive 
our brother, even as Christ said in Luke 17.4, if he sins seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. But what if our brother has broken the civil law by committing adultery against his spouse? Because he repents, should he be released from any obligation to the civil law? If so, what if he commits murder? Should he likewise be released from the consequences of his crime because he has repented? You see, dear ones, although we must always extend personal forgiveness where there is evidence of repentance, we may not be released from the consequences or civil sanction for our sin simply because we have received the forgiveness of another. Divorce, like capital punishment, is a lawful civil sanction instituted by God himself for the sin or the crime of adultery. If God instituted death as a just penalty for adultery, even where there might be personal forgiveness given to the guilty party, then likewise, if the Lord also instituted divorce as a just penalty for adultery, there might also follow a lawful divorce even where there is personal forgiveness given to the guilty party. Granted, the innocent party does not have to divorce the guilty party. The innocent party is not required to divorce the guilty party. She may indeed, or he may indeed, seek marital reconciliation at that point. <clears throat> Yet, the civil sanction of divorce is nevertheless granted by God as an option. A lawful option to exercise by the innocent party. Even as the civil magistrate may have an option in either punishing or remitting certain punishment for certain types of, of crimes committed, looking at the circumstances, he may have that option. Nevertheless, if he does not exercise that option, but punishes, he has yet done so lawfully in exercising the sanction or even the full extent of the law. He has not sinned in doing so. Finally, with regard to this question, remember that marriage is a civil covenant, similar to the civil covenant that exists between, remember the illustration, between a president and the people who elected him? So that if the president flagrantly breaks the civil covenant, may not the people legally divorce him and remove him from office, even though they may personally forgive him upon his repentance? (coughs) 
A third and final question this Lord's Day. It is asked whether a lawful divorce pertains only to the dissolution of betrothal, that is, engagement, or to the dissolution of marriage as well. First of all, it is evident from Scripture that a lawful divorce may indeed occur during the betrothal period for betrothal or engagement is a binding covenant to be united in marriage at some future time. At betrothal, a man becomes an espoused husband and a woman becomes an espoused wife. Betrothal, therefore, cannot be broken for any less violation than would also dissolve a marriage. You will remember that Joseph sought to divorce Mary, says that he was a just and righteous man, and sought to divorce her or put her away secretly while they were yet betrothed, before they were actually joined in marriage. And so, yes, there may be, in fact, divorce during the betrothal period. However, it is equally evident from Scripture that a divorce may also occur after marriage. Consider that Christ as we look at Matthew chapter 19, is not dealing with betrothal specifically when he answers the question that was put to him by the Pharisees. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now, how do we know from the text that the wife referred to here is not simply an espoused wife? but rather one to whom he is married. Well, if you have, again, your Bibles, look at Matthew chapter 19 if you would like to follow along. There the Lord says, in Matthew 19.5, he refers to the Genesis 2 account of marriage not mere betrothal. The marriage of Adam and Eve. And in Matthew 19.5, he says, And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Though that is promised, to occur in the future in betrothal, that actually takes place in marriage. That they actually, at that point, leave mother and father and cleave to one another and become one flesh, both covenantally and sexually, physically intimate. Thus follows the Lord's conclusion in Matthew 19.6. Wherefore, the Lord says, They are no more twain, but one flesh. 
What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Tying in the context, the Lord says what God hath joined together, not merely in betrothal, but what God hath joined together in marriage as well, let no man put asunder. And furthermore, when the Pharisees raised the matter of the bill of divorcement in Matthew 19.7, the following verse, which takes us back again to Deuteronomy 24, this discussion concerning the bill of divorcement follows directly from Christ's discussion of marriage, not betrothal, in the previous verses. So that when we arrive at Matthew 19.9, the context has clearly set the stage for Christ's words concerning the dissolution of marriage, not betrothal. Dear ones, as we come to the conclusion this Lord's Day, because God's holy name does indeed rest upon the institution of marriage. Let us not make the name of God common and ordinary by making our marriages common and ordinary. Each day as you rise, before you go to bed, give thanks to the Lord, dear ones, for your marriage. Give thanks to the Lord for your husband and your wife. Praise God that He has kept you together, that He has sealed you together and bound you together. Let not pride enter in and think that it is your good works, that it is your uh, personality or your qualities that has kept your marriage together. Indeed, it is not. It is the grace of God that has sustained you and sustained your wife and your husband. It is His restraining grace that has kept you from becoming unfaithful to your marriage covenant. Just as God said to Abimelech, I have withheld you from sinning with Sarah. So God has by His grace withheld each of us from being unfaithful to our spouse. And so that it is always glory that is given to God for how He has sustained and kept and preserved our marriages. Our marriage, dear ones, apart from the grace of God, would shatter, would break into a million pieces. So let us not ascribe, dear ones, any confidence to the flesh For either our earthly marriages or especially, let us not ascribe any confidence in the flesh for our heavenly marriage to the Lord Jesus Christ. For if we can take no credit for our earthly marriage, certainly we can take no credit for our heavenly marriage. For the Lord our God covenanted with the Son of God 
from all eternity to purchase and secure our salvation through his life, death, resurrection, and ongoing ministry on our behalf. It was not due to our goodness, our works, nothing at all could have merited our salvation. There was nothing within us of any redeeming value to the Lord. We stood absolutely under the condemnation of God. We were His enemies, not His friends. We were ungodly, the Lord says, by nature. Not righteous. But He, by His grace, in the covenant of grace, wooed us unto Himself through the free offer of the gospel and betrothed us unto Himself through faith that was given to us. Faith in Jesus Christ alone. And now we await our glorious wedding feast with Christ in heaven where we will enjoy forever the home which He has been preparing for us. What a glorious salvation is ours. And it is all due to the grace of Christ. Never forget it. Please stand with me in prayer. Oh, Father, Thou hast brought us to our knees again to fall upon Thy mercy and Thy grace, to look away from ourselves, to take no confidence in the flesh. Our Father, Jesus is our salvation. We praise Thee this day that Thou hast preserved our earthly marriage, but Father, we especially praise Thee that Thou hast preserved our heavenly marriage. We look to Thee, O God, to continue to grant to us the grace for all that we need. We pray, Father, that the the grace we receive from our heavenly husband would in fact impact our earthly marriage. That we would seek, O Father, to conform as much as we are able by Thy grace to conform our earthly marriage to that heavenly marriage. We pray, Father, that Thou would forgive us of our many sins in profaning the name of the Lord in not treating our wives or our marriage or our husbands as we ought for desecrating that which Thou dost call holy. We pray, Father, that Thou would forgive us and grant us, Lord, the grace to press on Trusting in Christ our Lord. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.sw.org.
swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.